Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Join me for insightful conversations and interviews about our cattle industry. Here we discuss the shared struggles and successes of this life we've chosen as ranchers. Here, we seek to learn from the experts around us, eager to grow and challenge the accepted. Here we are, the Black Hereford Chronicles. Another quick sale report for you guys. The Southern Classic down in Texas was last weekend. The 14 lots of bulls averaged $3,160, and the 47 lots of females averaged $3,044. It's always the season for something. Calving, vaccinating, breeding, summer management, winter management. There's always challenges that we need to be more prepared for. What do you have in your toolbox? I brought Dr. Julia Herman back onto the show to talk about preparedness, calving tips, BSE and winter bull care, and really a ton of interesting vet rabbit holes. Even the old timers will pick up something new on this episode. Let's dig in. Excuse me while I pop in here to tell you about one of our wonderful sponsors, Gestell Family Farms. The Gestells believe in the future of Black Hereford cattle. Their goal is to be a leading source of superior seed stock for the industry, producing exceptionally sound and genetically proven cattle. They are truly committed to breeding world-class Black Herefords and have not only made their genetic choices, but also their commitment to the breed and its success a priority. If you want to learn more about their program and breeding philosophy, Bill would love to chat with you. You can email him at bgaestel at live.com or give him a call at 304-268-9121. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Black Hereford Chronicles. I have got a returning guest, but Julia, will you go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of remind us what you do and where you're from just for those that maybe haven't listened to the previous episode I had you on for, or just need a little refresher? Sure. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Happy to be back. So I'm uh, Dr. Julia Herman. I'm the Beef Cattle Specialist Veterinarian for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And so I am the Education and Outreach Veterinarian for NCBA. And so a lot of my responsibilities is uh, developing educational resources for cattle producers and veterinarians, uh, connecting those producers and veterinarians. And uh, a lot of my focus is anything uh, cattle welfare, cattle health, biosecurity is thrown in there. Uh, but that's, that's really what I do. I'm originally from Colorado. I still live in Colorado, uh, in Northern Colorado. So, um, which is where you and I went to college. Yay CSU. So, uh, that's in general what I do. Well, perfect. I'm super excited for this because I think we're going to cover a lot of really great information today. And I'd love to just start with kind of a basic what to have on hand, what ranchers should be prepared with. You know, when we moved our operation a year ago, it was a really great time to go through all of our junk. And I was amazed, first of all, by how much expired junk we had that had to go, but it really made me take stock. Like, what do we actually have on hand? What should we have on hand? And so I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit. Um, Let's just kind of start with basic medical supplies. What do you recommend everyone's got in that toolbox ready to go? 
Sure. Uh, I think that's, I mean, I think a yearly evaluation of a lot of the things we have on hand, not just like it, I, I feel like that's a life lesson there. Like every <laughs> year we should be going through this and what it, what's expired and what's not. Uh, but with basic medical supplies for uh, a cattle herd, um, I, well, I really, I really start with that VCPR, that veterinarian client patient relationship, like having that veterinarian, uh, having their phone number on hand. So in case you do have an emergency, have that posted somewhere. So if you have, say you're out of town, you have the neighbors helping out, they need to know who to call in case something happens. So that's part of my basic medical kit. Uh, Things like a thermometer, um, a basic stethoscope. I think it's really important for uh, for cattle producers to be able to do just a, a basic uh, physical exam. Like, listen, you can take a heart rate. You can um, listen to rumen contractions to see if that rumen is going, taking that temperature, because those are all basic. Like, if you're, um, if you're calling the veterinarian, you're like, hey, my animal seems off. Those are some, uh, that's some good information that they can use to be like, this might be emergency, this might not be. Uh, having things um, like your exam gloves, uh, OB sleeves, always sleeve up. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, zoonotic diseases, so diseases that can pass between animals and humans that cattle can carry. So like salmonella, E. coli, um, other things. So it's always good to protect yourself from things like that. Uh, Basic um, wound or uh, like disinfectant, so either an iodine or a chlorhexidine solution, that's really easy to have. Uh, I like having just a little uh, bottle of um, just dish soap because you can use that to like get super muddy or super, uh, super poopy fur clean if you need to get to it. Uh, needles of various sizes. Uh, I actually use a tackle box. Um, to put my separate needle sizes in. So it's just easy access and you can just grab whatever you think you need. Uh, the beef quality assurance, any, any of our, uh, our field guide or our manual, we have recommendations for types of needles and when you should use them. So calves and ca calves and adults are going to take different sizes needles, either from generally 18 gauge for calves, 16 gauge for, uh, for those, bigger animals, um, and then different lengths, depending on if you're going sub QIM or IV, uh, lots of syringe sizes, depending on the, I mean, it could be a vaccine. It could be a supplement. It could be uh, an antibiotic that you might need to give. So having all those different syringes, uh, duct tape, I put, we use duct tape for a lot of things. So duct tape is in my basic medical kit, just in case, uh, a good light, uh, some people use pen lights. Um, I've used a headlamp for uh, like nighttime emergencies that I've needed. Uh, I've also found a couple of really great magnetic uh, magnetic lights um, that are super bright. They're LEDs, so uh, something like that, so you can see at night. I think that's helpful. But uh, that's the start of what I have in a, a medical kit. But what do you? What else do you have in your kit? So, you know, it, it's been interesting. It's one of those things that you want to make sure you have on hand before you need it. Because by the time you realize you needed something, it's too late, right? None of us live in town. Right. We wouldn't be doing this. I love the list you started with. Um, one that I would love to ask you about that's a little more specific is epinephrine. Oh, we, sure. we wound up with a situation this year. We had to switch the vaccine that we were given our cows because everything's on back order, right? This is the new world we live in where 
you give what you can get, not necessarily yep. what you usually do. And so our girls received shots that they had not in the past. And we had one cow have a reaction yeah. to the shot. And, you know, we, there was not a whole lot we could do. And just kind of was what it was. So I called the vet up the next day and said, what do you recommend? And they hooked us up with some epinephrine to keep on hand. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this is like a common thing. And I'm just behind the curve on this. But that's a standard <laughs> thing that people keep on hand. I would love to hear your thoughts on on why that matters or if it is something that maybe, you know, you, you really need to talk to your vet about first to have a good understanding of how to use it ahead of time, I assume. Yeah, I think that that's a great uh that's a great tip because I think that's something that we don't think about. I mean, allergic reactions happen in all animals, not just humans. Uh, and um, I mean, I worked at a job during vet school where that's literally all we did was look for anaphylactic sh- reactions in animals that we just vaccinated. So um, I think that's uh, I'm glad that you were paying attention to your cattle that quick that that well after you vaccinated, because I think some of it, I mean, most of the time we, you know, we vaccinate and send them off into the field and you don't pay attention. Um, most of the time cattle are fine, but in this particular case, epinephrine helps with that, uh, with that anaphylactic shock shock. Um, so I think since you know that you have a specific animal that has, or that did react to that vaccine, having it on hand makes sense. Cause you have that in your records and you're like, okay, next time we vaccinate, we're going to pay attention to this. Um, it's great that you talked to your veterinarian. I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of these extra medications are really operation and regional specific. So talking to your veterinarian, figuring out what you, what your operation needs is really important. That it, that includes epinephrine, vitamin supplements, uh, different antibiotics. That's all going to be operation specific. So working with your veterinarian is really important there. In addition to anaphylactic shock that epinephrine helps with, uh, it actually uh, helps relax the uterus during difficult calvings. And so a lot of my colleagues, uh, when they're out working on dystocias, they'll use that uh, to let that uterus relax. So you're able to manipulate that calf a little better uh, to try to get it out quicker. So there are some extra uses. Uh, that's again, something to, something to talk to your vet, vet about on how to, how to use it and proper dosages. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely, like I said, because you have a cow that's already, already, you know, has a medical history. It's good to have on hand. Yeah. So this is a little off in the woods, but it's something that I keep thinking about every time I talk to my vet. I'm very lucky. I live in cow country. There's a lot of vets around, right? It's pretty mm-hmm. easy for me to get a hold of the people. But I've heard from a lot of our friends down in the Southeast that struggle to find somebody. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for those guys that are like, yeah, but I can never find anybody? Yeah. And I I think that's, I think it's a challenge. Uh, I mean, in a lot of different rural areas uh, because the number of uh, large animal vets is is going down. Um, we're definitely graduating, not very, not as many, uh, and so finding being able to find that uh, that veterinarian can be can be challenging. The few things that I uh, that I recommend um, is talking to your state veterinary medical association. So each state, like so. Colorado, for example, Colorado VMA, uh, I, you know, you could potentially call them up and be like, Hey, I'm looking for a veterinarian. And they, they do have a list of veterinarians that, that say that they practice on large animals. You can certainly do that. Uh, 
the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners. So I'll, I'll, they all uh, work on sheep, goats, camelids type. Um, they actually have, uh, you, can, you can search for veterinarians or ask them for veterinarians in, in your state. Uh, the other one, if you do have a vet school within your state, you can also call them and see if you can find some private practitioners that way. So it's uh, you do have to get creative depending on uh, on where you are. Um, your extension program throughout the state can also be very helpful because those extension agents are connected to veterinarians uh, just based on their job. And so those are some ways that you can try to find a veterinarian. Well, thank you for going down that rabbit hole with me. It's important. So one other one that I know a lot of people keep on hand and that I have never had use for that I'm aware of. It's possible that I should have had use for it, but I, I don't understand it super well is magnets. Mm -hmm. How do you know when you really should be giving a cow a magnet? Uh, That is such a good question. Uh, So magnets, um, what the reason we use them is to prevent hardware disease. And so hardware disease, for those of you who have not experienced it, is this devastating thing that you uh, that there are a few things that you can do to prevent. But basically, cows eat anything, including wires that are in hay. And uh, what happens is that wire gets down into the reticulum, which is one of the four compartments of uh, the GI tract or the, the I guess, four compartments of the stomach, if you will. Um, but uh, what it can do is it, it can basically pierce through the reticulum, through the diaphragm, and, and it'll pierce the heart sac. And it'll create this huge inflammatory infection. And over time, that infection around the heart can actually kill the animal based on a number of reasons like that, that heart isn't able to beat appropriately. Um, the infection overwhelms uh, overwhelms the animal. But uh it's one of those things where you don't know what's happening until it's too late to help. Right. And so that magnet is, uh, oh, it, you, it's, you use a bolus gun to, to drop it in, uh, you know, you bolus it into the animal and it, and that magnet will fall into the reticulum and it'll collect all those little metal particulates that the animal happens to eat. Uh, it's hard. I mean, it, each magnet costs, I mean, it costs money to purchase that magnet. And most people don't reuse them because they just stay in the cow until they, <laughs> until they leave. I'm not going to lie. Uh, that would be kind of weird. Like I got to get that <laughs> magnet back. <laughs> right. So, uh, I mean, it does cost a little bit to do that. Um, but I think, uh, I know a lot of our dairies will just automatically add magnets to them because they just want to prevent it from happening. Um, there are some risk factors. So like, uh, I mean, say you started renting a pasture that has a lot of old equipment in it or something like that, you might have a, a higher risk there. Um, I, I'm not rec- I'm not necessarily recommending you give magnets to everybody, but maybe if you have um, like say bulls, because those bulls have a little bit higher value, I think those might be something uh, to consider putting a magnet in. Some of your cows, uh, like if you have cows in those specific fields that you might think uh, might think that they're at higher risk, I think you could you could argue that magnets might be a good thing there. Um, it's very challenging to to know which animals to uh, to give a magnet because. Some animals are in that situation and they say they'll get 
I've seen some animals like we've, we, I've done necropsies on animals and I've found a wire, but they actually, they have no signs of hardware disease, but then you see animals that have this super advanced hardware disease, but, um, and they're still producing fine. Cattle are really amazing. Like they can, they can undergo a lot of illness and pathology before you recognize that they're actually, that they're actually sick or dealing with something. And that's how hardware disease is. And so that's why it's really, it's really challenging to know who to do that with. Um, I think that's another great uh, opportunity with your veterinarian. Just be like, is this something I need to be paying attention to? Um, I think if you're uh, like, like you and Logan have your own hay that you are growing and feeding, maybe that's lower risk than hay that you're buying in. Cause you just don't know how it was, uh, how it was bailed. So um, there's a little bit, uh, there's a lot of nuance to it is what it comes down to. Well, yeah. And I was just kind of thinking exactly what you were saying. If you're bringing in a lot of outside hay and we know that right now, hay is crazy and people yep. are putting I mean, every ditch, every corner that they can find into those bales. If you're bringing in a lot of outside hay from somebody that you're not super experienced with, it might be the better way to go just to prevent that loss, especially if you're, you know, running seed stock or or high priced animals. Yep. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think that's definitely a consideration and something to talk with your vet about. Cause I mean, it, it does have to pencil out in the end, right? You're still paying, you're still paying for the time, uh, the time it takes to put the, to put the magnet in each animal, but then also, uh, the magnet itself, but, right. um, definitely something to think about, especially, I mean, we see a lot of, I've seen a lot of hardware in, uh, the places I practiced in Colorado and Kansas. So, um, definitely something to consider. Have you checked out Peter's Farm Black Herefords yet? At Peter's, they believe in hardy bulls, docile cows, sturdy calves, and making black Herefords the breed of the future. Peter's Family Farm truly started from the ground up, building solid F1s and seeking constant growth and improvement. They currently have some bulls and heifers available, so make sure you head over to Peter's Farm Black Herefords, all one word, dot com, and see what they've got going on. You can also give Bobby a call at 704-928-8458. So I'd love to dig into some of the timely ones, right? Most of us are getting ready to start calving or already have. Yeah, we're very lucky. We pushed our calving season back two weeks this year, and I could not be more pleased with that decision. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like we actually knew what we were doing. That's awesome. But there's a lot of stuff associated with calving. So what specific tools should people have on hand? Like we've got a backpack. I call it our go backpack. Great idea. You know, so that you can just grab it and go. Yep. But beyond, you know, your scale and, and your things that you need, if you're seed stock specific, there's a lot of things that you might need to assist. Yeah. So what would the, yeah. you say I need to have in that backpack? Oof. Uh, backpack is such a great idea. I was, um, I have a little like tackle box type uh, tool, toolbox that I use for my calving kit. So I love hearing the creative ways that uh, that people make sure that they have all the stuff that they need. Uh, so calving, um, I think the biggest thing to remember is one, your cows, if you have to assist, they are stressed. I mean, calving is not an, an unstressful thing. Uh, so, I mean, just understand that it's a stressful situation for all involved. Um, but 
we also want to make sure to remember that that calf, once it gets out, uh, does not have a fully, or well, the immune, they're able to react to, th- to things with their immune system, but um, not as well as an adult. And so there's a lot of things that we want to do to prep that calf for having the, the best chance at having a productive life. Um, but if we're starting on the calving section, I think one of the big things is having a dry place out of the wind that your cows can be calving, or once the calf is on the ground, you can take that calf into that area to protect them. Those babies uh, are very small. They have a large surface area to volume of body weight. And so they lose heat a lot quicker than our adults do. And so having that separate area for them to either, you know, maybe you have a barn or a lean to that those animals can calve in, keep those babies there until they are dry and up and have nursed before you kick them out into, you know, the paddock or the pasture. Uh, we, uh, chains. Um, some people like using obstetrical chains. Uh, there's also straps you can use that are more fabric based uh, or not fabric. It's like a um, straps that you're tying down right. hay on a truck. Yeah. So, uh, but either way, those should be disinfected in between each use. Uh, we want to keep, make sure, basically you don't want to, you want to keep everything as clean as possible while you're helping that calf get out or helping with that dystocia. Um, lots of clean towels in case you need it. Uh, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big proponent of waterproof coveralls. Uh, for anybody helping with calving, because we know that if you're going to have to go to a dystocia in the middle of the field, it's going to be 20 degrees. It's super cold and like wind is going to be 20 miles an hour. So having waterproof coveralls or uh, I also have a waterproof scrub top that I'll put on um, that just makes makes it easier for you to like you're not thinking about being cold and wet because you're protected from that. Uh, large trash bags. Um, the That's to make sure you have a clean area in case you do have to pull a calf on a, on a, like a really dirty, um, a really dirty field. Or, uh, if you happen to have a uterine prolapse, tra- trash bags are really nice. You can put that uterine prolapse. Well, the vet can, you or you and the vet can put that uterine prolapse on that trash bag to try to keep it clean. Um, esophageal feel- feeder. So any, if you need to tube that calf, I think that's really important to have. And my, um, the tip that I try to tell people is have at least two of them and label one for sick calves and label one for newborn calves. Cause mm. if you are not cleaning and disinfecting those appropriately and you pull that sick, that sick esophageal, sick calf esophageal tuber, and you give it to your new baby, you're just inoculating that baby with all these different pathogens that you don't want. So make sure you have two label one. Um, the tip was red duct tape on, on the sick one so that you know that that's the sick one. Um, but make sure you clean and disinfect those in between each use again. Uh, those are, um, having a calf blanket, calf blankets are, I feel like people think of those more for dairies, but I think they're very useful in the beef world too, especially if you keep, uh, if you keep your calves close, you can put that, that calf blanket on, um, you know, for the first few days, uh, as it's growing up. And then once it gets strong enough, you can, you can, uh, take that calf, calf blanket off. Um, OB lube, I cannot stress if you're, if you think you're not using enough OB lube, you probably aren't. So just keep using OB lube. Um, I prefer the stuff that's already in liquid form. There is a product out there. It's powdered. Uh, it, it, 
it's a powdered form that you mix up with water, um, which most of the time is is a good idea. However, if your animal might if your animal has to go to C-section, that powdered uh, that powdered loop that gets reconstituted, um, it can actually it uh, infect the uterus and cause a lot of peritonitis, and so it decreases the the chances of your cow recovering. So um, if you think you that if you think you have a really bad dystocia, just use the liquid. Just use the liquid lube, um, and check your lube. So I learned the hard way this last year. Not all of them are created equal, and some of them will freeze, and some of uh, them won't. Yeah. So I now have ones that have to stay in the house, and ones that can stay in the barn. But no, because if I'd been out there and it had just been frozen and useless, I wouldn't have been very pleased. That's a great tip, and yeah, I I. Um, I know a lot of vets will, they'll keep the lube on the floorboard at the pickup and make sure that it stays warm yeah. because like you just said, you don't want to go reach for it. It's, and it's, uh, and it's frozen. The other thing, um, have a bucket. You can either have a five gallon bucket or, a, a like a steel bucket. Um, I would dedicate it to the calving kit. Uh, but that's so that you can put in, uh, you can disinfect those chains, like have just a dilute betadine or dilute uh, chlorhexidine solution in that bucket. Um, you can clean yourself off, but you also want to clean off that vulva um, before you enter into uh, enter into that uterus. If you're going to put chains on a calf, you want to make sure you're as clean as possible when you enter that, because it one, it just it prevents uh, it helps prevent that uterus from being infected afterwards. Um, but then it also keeps a clean you know, environment for that calf to come out into. So, um, I tell people with the five gallon bucket, make sure it's not the one that you used, you know, to have extra, extra oil in there or something like that. Just dedicate a bucket to the cabin kit. So, so that kind of leads me now down another rabbit hole, since we're talking about disinfecting and cleaning in general, what should we be cleaning vaccine guns with? Ooh, great question. Uh, hot water. (laughs) So your vaccine guns, um, there's a lot of different tips that people will say, but I like to, I like to separate my, I actually like to label my vaccine guns. Like if I know I have a modified live vaccine, it only goes in one specific gun. If I only, if I have a brucellosis vaccine, I have one, one specific gun to that. Um, if you have oil-based vaccines, so like your, uh, clostridial vaccines, or virus shield, um, those type of vaccines, those will have a separate gun. And they're big on lutalize too. I, I make oh, sure my lutalize gun is clearly marked. Yep, absolutely. So I think the big thing is, is uh, one, so modified live vaccines, if they mix with anything, so uh, that oil-based, uh, those oil-based vaccines can leave a little bit of a residue. Uh, but if they, if the modified live mixes with any sort of residue or like an antibiotic, if you put an antibiotic into a syringe, um, it'll inactivate that vaccine. And so you're injecting it and you're not going to get the reaction you want. So you're wasting money by doing that. So make sure your modified live vaccine has its own vaccine or have, has its own gun or own syringe. Um, but regardless of what you put into the syringe, a hot water is the only thing that I put into into my uh, syringe guns or or syringes, period. Um, any sort of disinfectant, no matter how dilute, will affect the product that you put into it the next time. And so I uh, I don't recommend any disinfectant, only hot water. Clearly label on what they are. 
HI slash cattle company still has some black Hereford bulls available this spring. HI slash Taft 127 is a program highlight from this year's offering. He's got a deep body and width that you just don't often see in a homo black and homo pulled bull. He's pulling top 3% marbling and above breed average API, and all of that's wrapped up in a calving ease package. You can see the entire offering at our website, HISLASHcattle.com, or give us a follow on Facebook. So I just like to pull up hot water and flush that uh, repeat syringe mm-hmm. uh, with hot water multiple times. You can also take take it apart, let it dry out. Uh, every now and again, you do want to make sure that that um, that gasket is lubed up, and so only use uh, like uh, vegetable oil is is the is the best thing there. So it doesn't use a lot of it doesn't leave a lot of residue, um, and uh, it's safe to if there is a it, it doesn't react with any of the vaccine components that you put into there. Um, but the other thing I like to do with my syringes, uh, is once they're dry, I actually put them in a baggie and keep them in the fridge. And then it, it prevents, uh, from anything, anything from growing on them. That makes sense. Well, one tip that it took me way too long into my adult life to figure out was a toothbrush. Yes. Some of those vaccines, some of the stuff you use is super sticky. Yep. So you're running hot water in there and just not getting it clean. Yep. And I was way too old before I went, oh, a toothbrush. Yeah, that that's a good, that's a good component. I mean, the other it, uh other tips, I mean, if you have a uh a vet supply store, God, th- uh, those uh I have one in Northern Colorado and God, I will just go to them for tips like that all the time. And they might have all sorts of tips that I'm not telling you. So definitely go to your vet supply store and see if they have tips too. Perfect. Okay. So now back to calving. (laughs) I took you down another rabbit hole. Yes. Um, How do you decide when to warm a calf? Ooh, I mean. I'm always (laughs) reluctant to pull them off their mothers. Yes. If I don't have to, it makes me very nervous for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And so I, I worry sometimes I don't maybe interfere when I should. So I'd just love to hear when, when do you go ahead and say yes? Yeah, that's, uh, I think a lot of it depends on what environment you're in. Like if you're in the middle of a pasture and you're in the middle of a blizzard, that calf needs that, you know, you, you will need to take that calf in and, and warm it up. Um, if you do decide to do that. So I think there's, uh, it goes, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to step back and talk mm-hmm. about that, that calf and some very important things that needs to happen within the first four hours of its life. One, it needs to get dry and, and survive, but, uh, that is the optimal time for that calf to get colostrum. And right. so that colostrum is that first milk. It has antibodies in it. It provides a lot of nutrients. Uh, that calf needs to get that colostrum within four hours because one, it, it, it gets that passive immunity to help with their immune system, but also all the, uh, the fat and all that, uh, and it's warm, um, all of that will help that baby stay warm and because it's digesting all of that colostrum. And so, um, there's a couple of different things. Again, it's going to depend on that specific animal or that specific cow and calf pair, uh, depending on what the environment is doing. But, um, say you, you're watching a calf and you say you helped pull a calf um, and seems to be it's standing up. It's trying to nurse. 
you might leave that one for a little a little bit of time um, to see if it'll nurse on its own. Uh, but if you say you have to pull a calf and you you know you get it dried off a little bit and it's not standing up and it just doesn't look like it's um, trying as hard as it should, maybe that's uh, maybe that's one that you do need to you know take it in, warm it up a little bit, maybe give it some colostrum, uh, either a replacer or supplement. Uh, it just to help it along once it gets a little more bright, then take it back out to mom. Um, if I know a lot of people have calving barns where they're able to separate mom and baby into separate pens, that's really helpful because you can sit there and watch them and it, uh, you can make sure that they're out of the, the cold and the wet and the windy, um, as a little bit better, but, um, it, gosh, it really depends. And then, um, I mean, I think a lot of times, uh, if it's snowy, if it's below a certain, I, I think it depends on the region, right? Like right. some of our cows in Nevada are going to be a little bit more hardy. And so maybe you don't need to intervene, you know, quite as well because they're range cows. Um, and I know that's a very general statement, but um, some of our, some of our animals can handle it a little bit better. But um, I think if, I think if, if they're super wet or if there's a lot of wind, I would err on the side of caution and, go help those babies quick, more quickly. Wait, talk to me about navel dipping. It's not one that I've done, but I know a lot of people that are very insistent that those navels on the newborn calves get dipped in iodine. Why is that? Is that really needed? Or is that just kind of a old farm tale kind of thing? I think it's a, it's a good preventive practice. When those babies are in utero, uh, that umbilical cord is providing all the blood and nutrition and, uh, you know, oxygenating that baby, keeping it alive. So once that cord is severed, once the calf is out, those vessels are still technically open and it takes a few days for those vessels to close down and that, that umbilicus to, to dry up and, um, slowly close down. And so if we dip it in, uh, either iodine or chlorhexidine, there are some navel sprays that you can use. Uh, what that does is it, um, it's an antiseptic. And so it helps prevent bacteria from getting up into that umbilicus and causing an infection. And so, uh, those vessels go to the liver and they also go to the, uh, the bladder. And so it takes a few days for those vessels to basically, um, shrink and go away. And so, the more we can minimize bacteria getting to that umbilicus, that bacteria doesn't have a chance to, it'll go, we call we say it goes retrograde either to the bladder or it can actually go to the liver and cause a systemic infection. And so um, it's, a, it, you know, dipping the navel is a really cheap and easy preventive practice. Uh, and if you, again, this is, I mean, it's, if you're calving out on the, on the range, it may not be as uh, practical, but I think, if you can dip it once, I think it's it. anything helps in that situation. Well, and especially if there's sprays, because I didn't realize that. And I'm thinking, oh, that'd be easy enough to throw in the backpack. Yep. Yep. Now, if that's an easy way to to prevent some illness or at least get them up and cruising faster without having to fight anything off, that probably yep. seems worthwhile. Yep. I would agree. Okay. So shifting gears to another timely one at, yes. at our operation in most places I want to talk about bulls. We're into bull buying season. Everybody's starting to think about turnout, that sort of thing. How important is getting a BSE on your bulls? Oh, I will. 
this was a this is a hill I will die on. BSE <laughs> or bowls every single year. Every bowl. Uh, I yeah, in my opinion, yes. Uh, because they're just um, a lot of t- a lot of the times. I mean, we're looking at the semen. Uh, making sure that that, you know, high enough concentration, high enough uh, mobility, making sure that, you know, it's you're providing or we're putting that bull out and trying to provide as much success to your breeding program as possible. There are so many things that can happen to a bull over the winter. Um, you know, lameness can be an issue. Blindness, looking at eyes to make sure they can see. Um, I've I remember. uh working for a veterinarian. And he, he told me his, uh, one of his stories about, he's like, I passed this bowl and didn't like, I failed to go and look like, just take a good look at its head. Right. You're thinking about the other end of things. I could very easily see forgetting to look look at at the whole, (laughs) we have to look at the whole animal. And so that's, that's nose to tail. And so he, he missed that this bowl had some severe, like pink eye scars on his, on its eyes. And that bull didn't do as well. Um, and he's like, that was just a failure on my part. Cause I just, I just forgot to do it. And so I think the BSC is not just about looking at, you know, I know we're feeling the testicles. We're looking for damage like frostbite or anything like that, that could happen. Um, abscesses in testicles can happen. Uh, but it, we're looking at the entire health of that animal. And so the other thing with BSEs is, I like to do BSEs um, a minimum of four weeks before breeding season, but if we could push it out to six to eight weeks, that's what I would like to do because bulls need revaccinated every year like your cows do. And if you're providing a modified live uh, vaccine to those animals, um, which you can, again, this is something to talk to your vet with. If you give a modified live vaccine, uh, that... um, the natural immune response to those vaccines can actually uh, impede the spermatogenesis or the per- the sperm production a little bit, and you want to give that bull enough time to get through that that process to make sure that those sperm are good when you when you put them out into the into the herd. So that, yeah, that sper- makes a lot of sense. I I was not aware of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, spermatogenesis in bulls takes about seventy days, and so that's where that's why I like to have. I like to err on, again, err on the side of caution. I like to go six to eight weeks prior to breeding season to make sure you're getting those vaccines in, but also making sure that if you find something like, you know, maybe one of your bulls ends up having, um, having an infection or something like that, where he can't be used, it gives you enough time to go find another bull. And so, um, if you're doing BSEs two days before you, uh, put them out and you realize that your bull is not good, it kind of puts you into a bind. So I, I prefer, uh, I prefer testing every bull. Um, there's a lot of other things. Uh, I mean, a lot of diseases that we need to pay attention to in bulls and vaccinate for. So leptospirosis is one of them. Uh, Campylobacter, which, which is Vibrio, the old word is Vibrio. Um, but if you're bringing in, if you're bringing in bulls, uh, to your herd, say you, uh, you know, if you purchase a bull, generally a BSE is included in that. Right. Uh, but I, the other thing with the six to eight weeks, um, if you're bringing in new bulls, I like to quarantine my bulls when they come into the herd. So you're making sure that they're not bringing in sort of respiratory disease, um, making sure they're vaccinated appropriately. The other thing that I just had a call about with a producer was um, he uh, he actually bought some foot diseases 
into the herd. And so he's now implementing a quarantine where he's he's working with his veterinarian to do a foot bath on all incoming animals. Um, but that's also another thing to think about. Uh, parasites are also something that new animals can bring onto your herd. So uh, quarantining new animals once you purchase them is a really good idea uh, just to make sure that they don't have anything that could be harming your home herd. I think that should ring true, especially for people that are raising seed stock, because we're really good at trading animals around all the time, yep. right? There's always a new heifer coming in kind of thing. And you don't know what yep. she might be coming in with. Quarantining makes a lot of sense. And I like to, I mean, I mentioned lepto and, and campy, um, other diseases that you can test new animals for bovine viral diarrhea. So BVD, you definitely don't want to bring that in. Um, and then, uh, Yoni's disease. Uh, I think a lot of us think that Yoni's disease is only a dairy problem, and it is ab absolutely not. We have Yoni's disease all over the beef industry, and um, that's also something. That's also a, another disease that uh, once you get it, it won't go away. And so it's better to test for them. It's, it's better to test new incoming animals uh, than it is to learn about it later. Well, and I would also say if you're running in common or, you know, where we were at on big BLM country, oh, trick was really absolutely. important. Know if you're in a trick area and test for that. And I, yeah, I totally missed that in the BSE. Yeah. Um, Colorado is a trick state. We are required to, to test for trick. There are a lot of other states who do that. Um, if you know that you are even remotely at risk for, for trichomoniasis, I would definitely, it, I mean, most BSEs include testing for trick. Uh, so that um, is definitely on the list. Thank you for bringing that up. And have your teenage children participate in those BSEs because I have found that that helps prevent all sorts of behavior <laughs> with those kids. I've always said, let's just skip like the middle school sex ed, send the kids to me. Yeah, We'll show them a trick test. They'll be terrified. Problem That's solved. amazing. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about frostbite a little bit. You know, we sure. had a crazy winter, unseasonably cold. I'll give that this is only our second winter in Nebraska, but everybody keeps telling us that this is not normal, which is what I repeat to myself over and over as I lay there shivering at night. Yes. But we were in, you know, wind chill factor 40 below. And we've got some bulls, you know, you do what you can, you bet them down, you try to make sure they're behind the windbreaks and stuff, but especially some of those older herd bulls, you know, they're not always the most cooperative or the smartest when it comes to those things. And so we've got some older bulls that have some frostbite. Mm -hmm. Are those just automatic coals? Is there a chance that they recover from that? I, uh, Wow. That's a great question. Um, so one, you're doing everything you can, right? I think, uh, I think our adult cattle generally don't need as much environmental protection as our babies. Uh, but that bull, I guess the most exposed part of that bull are those testicles because they're not like, uh, like a boar. Those testicles are like right up against the body. They can keep them warm a little bit better. Bull, bulls, rams, bucks, um, these are all these are all animals that in the winter you definitely need to provide a windbreak, provide dry bedding for them to lay down on, so that they so that uh, spermatogenesis can continue and they can thermally regulate that those testicles. Um, with 
with animals that do get frostbite, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a uh, like they're absolutely not going to produce or not, re, you know, not create uh, good sperm again. Um, I mentioned earlier that that cycle of spermatogenesis is 70 days. So sometimes say you had a frost, say, say you had a snow, snow, snowstorm like three weeks ago and you did your BSE. They might they might still be recovering, so they might not have a great semen sample, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll they'll fail. What the vet will likely do is just be like, uh, "I'm not going to pass him right now. We're going to recheck in so many days." And so some people recheck in two weeks, some people recheck in a month, um, some people wait for the full two months to make sure that full seventy days goes across. So there's always a chance uh, that those bulls can still be um, still be used. Uh, you just might have to do a recheck BSE, uh, depending on what they find on that on that initial exam. Yeah, we've learned the hard way. Frostbite out here was no joke. We had a few cows that even wound up with frostbite on their top knots. And I had never seen that before in my life. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> uh, well, any other last minute tips as we all head into spring calving and bull season and turnout and all that that you would have for us? Oh, I th I think we've touched on a lot of I, I just great topics. I I always appreciate talking with you because you have some very just useful topics that we need to that we need to talk about. Um, I I think I'm just going to say good luck. I know that March is going to be cold. And uh, make sure you're taking care of yourselves, include in addition to your animals, uh, trying to get as much sleep as you can and just staying as warm as as warm as you can. Um, but I appreciate uh, I appreciate everything that you're doing and everything that the producers are doing out there. I, that's why I love this industry. Well, and I just want to reiterate something that we've touched on over and over in here, and that's talk to your vet, find a vet, find a resource, whether it is a local vet or you're calling your land grant school and getting some help because everything is so regional. Yes. I, yeah, it's, uh, what I recommend in Eastern Colorado is not going to be the same as what's in Western Nebraska, even though they're right across the state line. So, um, it definitely is region specific. So, uh, I, I concur with your, your advice. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate <laughs> you taking time today. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Hereford Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.